There's really a patchwork of different requirements and regulations for each project. And so I think addressing NEPA is one drop in the bucket of what's really needed here. And I would encourage people to kind of keep that big picture because it's easy to just like criticize NEPA all day long, but like would getting rid of NEPA help? I don't think that it would. Hello and welcome to Energy 360, the podcast from the Energy Security and Climate Change Program at CSIS. I'm your host, Lisa Highland. In this episode, Joseph Mikett talks with two experts about the need for permitting reform to allow for new energy infrastructure to be built in the United States. He talks with Mike Cottonzero and Marcella Maholland. Mike is president and chief policy officer at the CGCN Group here in Washington, and Mike is an affiliate with our program. And Marcella is the political director at Data for Progress, a think tank also here in Washington. Without significant reforms to the permitting process, energy security and the climate agenda in the U.S. could be at risk as energy projects could see continued delays and struggle to be built. We've also seen that Senator Joe Manchin made a push for permitting reform, most recently following the passage of the Inflation Reduction Act, but his bill ultimately failed to find enough votes. So we'll turn it over now to Joseph to talk with Mike and Marcella about what we would need to see happen to move a bipartisan effort for permitting reform here in the United States. Welcome to both of you to the Energy 360 podcast. I'm really excited to have a conversation today. Permitting reform has been on the docket and in the environment here in Washington for the past month. And I'm hoping our conversation today can focus on what just happened, what lessons can we learn from that, and what's the path forward. Before we get into that, though, I, you know, I'm, I'm really grateful that both of you made it. And I'd, I'd love to give you each a chance to introduce yourself and talk a little bit about how you find your way to permitting reform as an issue that you've spent some time on. Marcella, maybe we can begin with you. How did Data for Progress and, and your work inform your thinking about permitting? Yeah, I can't say I predicted a year ago or when I was younger that I would become a permitting enthusiast, but here I am. I think my interest in permitting is really born out of my commitment to addressing climate change. So my background is mostly in the climate movement. So I was part of Sunrise back in the day. Um, In 2018, I took a semester off from college to work with Sunrise to elect climate champions in Florida, which is where I'm from, and then worked at a think tank doing Green New Deal policy research and now at Data for Progress. I started off on our climate team and now kind of helped to lead our broader political and policy portfolio, of which climate is a really big piece. And I think from my perspective, like for all of my political life, the big goal of the climate movement has been to pass a big federal package of climate investments. And now that we did that with the Inflation Reduction Act, the question becomes, well, how do we actually make sure that these investments are put to work in the way that we need and have the impact on emissions that we are hoping for? And as I started to read the research and analysis on like the emissions reductions that the Inflation Reduction Act could have compared to the need to to reform our permitting process to make it move quickly, it's really become clear to me that the new frontier of the climate movement must focus on making it easier and quicker to build out the clean energy infrastructure that the climate crisis demands. And Mike, the same question to you. I mean, you've been in in the D.C. world for a long time. Your background on permitting and your thoughts on, on where we stand today. Absolutely. Well, it's great to be here. I have been involved in this issue in one form or another for, well, geez, almost two decades now, uh, both in and out of government. Uh, I worked in roles working on environment and energy policy in the House and the Senate. And I worked in two different administrations at the White House, CEQ, National Economic Council. I also worked at EPA. So. I've seen uh, the permitting process both from the inside and from the outside, and there's no question that it needs to be improved fairly drastically and hopefully fairly quickly. From my vantage point, I mean, I now work in the consulting space and have clients both in the renewable space, but also who are building out infrastructure for fossil fuels, includes pipelines, oil and gas wells, and those sorts of things. But there seems to be this emerging consensus both those who are building out renewable projects and those on the other side building fossil fuel projects, that we have to change the system for the better. Uh, there are various ways of doing that. I think Sal and I probably have maybe some different takes on how we should go about doing that. Republicans and Democrats certainly do. And that's one of the things we'll talk about in terms of the mansion bill and how it cratered, at least for a time, 
But that's where we stand. And I'm really hopeful that both sides can come together and we can figure out a bipartisan compromise on this. I think we're getting there and it's going to take some time, uh, maybe to the next Congress and beyond. And it's not going to be just one fix, probably going to be several incremental fixes. But I'm really excited about it. I really like these issues, enjoy these issues, and hopefully we can uh, all come together and get a win. Let's start with what has just transpired. So as condition to passing the Inflation Reduction Act, Senator Manchin secured an agreement with Senate and House leadership on the Democratic side to bring forward a permitting bill that would sit alongside the IRA. What happened to that side deal? You were close to the negotiations. Like you you kind of understand. So we never got to a vote. It was Senator Manchin withdrew the idea that it would be stuck to must-pass legislation. But can you give us a sense of the underlying political dynamics in the Senate, who was for, who was interested, who was not, and what was the conversation leading up to the decision to withdraw from consideration? Sure. So I think the you know the initial side deal on the part of Senator Manchin, along with Senator Schumer, Speaker Pelosi in the White House, I think the thought was, and it's reasonable enough to think, that Senator Manchin wanted to get certain things done. I think the Mountain Valley Pipeline is very critical to him. It's very crucial to his home state's energy industry. I think he thought, well, wait a minute, let's help Mount Valley, but let's also build out some broader permitting reforms to help the entire system for the better. And the thought was, if we do that and we put those reforms onto a must-pass bill, well, surely we're going to get the Republican support for that that will help get this over the 60-vote threshold in the Senate. We can get this through the House to speak. Pelosi will help manage any problems within the caucus. This can get done, right? Yes, of course. Well, sure enough, it didn't get done. And I think there are three reasons, three reasons it did not get done. First, I think his policy, there are serious policy concerns and opposition from a lot of Republicans on various aspects of the bill, which we can talk about. There were procedural concerns as well. I mean, a lot of discussions that I had with staff, they said, hey, if Joe Manchin had come to my boss three, four, five weeks earlier, they would have rolled up their sleeves to try to figure something out. They would have felt like they had some skin in the game, that there's things they could have tightened up or provision bills that they had been working on that maybe they could have incorporated. But the, of course, the deal was the deal. And I think Senator Manchin was constrained, wasn't able really to do that. I think there was also a personal dimension here. I think there were Republicans who were frustrated that Senator Manchin did break and ultimately vote for the IRA. And so I think there were folks who just didn't want him to get the win. But all in all, when you take those three factors together, I think the policy can be fixed and the procedural issues can be fixed and the personal animus that will go away over time. So that's, I think, what happened. And that's how we didn't get to 60 votes. I think there's also a lot of opposition in the House, which maybe Marcella can speak to. A lot of House progressives did not want this package to be on the CR, didn't really like this package at all. I think the Mountain Valley Pipeline was particularly controversial. So there was a concern. You know, as this deal was sort of trying to move through the Senate, that even if you could get it through the Senate, would there be enough votes to get it through the House as part of the CR? So it's just all these things came to a head. And I think Senator Manchin did the right thing and pulled the bill at the end of the day. Well, and just for the you know clarity and for the record, the, the reason why this the permitting reform can't be tied to the IRA is you're making a bunch of changes to law. And the IRA passed through a budgetary process. The difference between the two is that the IRA can pass with only Democratic support, but to pass the filibuster rule and to to really make changes in law, the permitting reform would have to get 60 votes in the Senate. So there was always a question of how many Republicans would be able to support that bill in a 50-50 Senate. And then there's always the possibility that because of certain provisions in the bill, you would have lost Democrats as well. One of the things we saw, and Marcella, this is a question to you, is a lot of progressive concerns about the permitting reform as was offered by Senator Manchin. You come from that world. What did you see and, and what did your colleagues and former colleagues identify as, as big challenges in the Manchin proposal itself? Yeah, I think Mike kind of hinted at this, but there really was a unique dynamic with this bill where you actually had the Senate GOP and House progressives on the same side of an issue and ultimately came together to tank it. And, you know, there's not many issues where you get the Congressional Progressive Caucus and Mitch McConnell on the same side of. So I think that speaks to kind of the interesting fissures in the climate movement and the permitting movement more broadly. And I think I would highlight like there was a concerted effort among environmental justice groups, climate and environmental groups, and House progressives, primarily led by Chairman Grijalva, 
to stop this deal. And there was a dear colleague letter that had upwards of 80 signatories, I think, at the end of the day. And when you have a House majority that's so slim, it really just takes a couple members coming together and saying, we don't support this to really threaten the viability of a piece of legislation. And, you know, 80 members is way more than what's necessary to block this. I think TBD, if those members would have actually been willing to shut down the government to stop this, thankfully for them, they don't have to answer that question. But I would say that the main reasons for opposition on the left were, for me, like, it's just clear that a lot of environmental justice groups specifically felt excluded from the process of building the Inflation Reduction Act. And the reality is, is that like congressional leadership and Joe Manchin like decided what was going to be in that bill. And so there were kind of leftover bad feelings about that and bad feelings about the oil and gas provisions of the IRA. And so I think the the movement and the in the climate community was already kind of in a, a contentious place post IRA. And then, I mean, the fact that the permitting deal came onto the scene with the American Petroleum Institute watermark certainly didn't help the vibes on the left. I would hope that in the future we could, you know, maybe not have the API watermark or you know, like it just set a sour taste in everyone's mouth and gave the left a really powerful and potent talking point of like, this is a bill that's written by the fossil fuel industry. And I think House progressives also felt like, you know, Senator Schumer, Pelosi and Biden may have made a a commitment to Manchin, but they didn't make a deal with him. So they didn't feel like they needed to come along. And furthermore, the Mountain Valley Pipeline has faced a lot of grassroots opposition. And, you know, it's pretty unprecedented to just have Congress, like, give a stamp of approval to a project like that that's had, you know, different legal challenges. So I would say the API watermark, the Mountain Valley Pipeline, and just in general, the feeling on the left was like, this is a bill that will make it easier to build more fossil fuel. Well, I think it's probably worth addressing some of the policies that were in the bill, in the mansion deal, because um, presumably, you know, nothing in Washington ever dies, things come back. And and it probably at least sets the tone for future conversations around around permitting reform. Mike, going to you, we saw elements of the left kind of position this bill as a series of fossil fuel giveaways, but I think there was a lot more to it. Can you kind of give us the hits out of the Manchin side deal in terms of permitting and what you think that uh, Senator Manchin and the other supporters of the package were trying to achieve? So, yeah, there were a number of, of policy objections that were raised to various parts of the bill. There were, I think, six or seven different sections in it. And, you know, over time, there's sort of this hierarchy of opposition that developed a certain provision for more of lightning rods than others. And I, I think what Senator Manchin was trying to achieve was one, trying to get broader sort of uh, improved coordination in the interagency process when you're dealing with uh, environmental impact statement reviews under NEPA. Of course, the legislation was very explicit. It was not amending NEPA or any other environmental statute and any other federal statute for that matter. But also then looking at specific issues within statutes that were causing problems. Uh, Section 401 and the Clean Water Act, certainly when you look at New York State, uh, New York State raised objections to interstate gas pipelines, and it ultimately resulted in those pipelines not getting built. There was language regarding transmission, which transmission can get very dicey, as you know, if you're involved with federalism issues, the states guard their, jealously guard their authority over transmission siting, and they did not like the provision on the language that was written by Senator Manchin and his team. And then there was a provision as well that also sparked fair amount of controversy over time, which was to define hydrogen as natural gas under the Natural Gas Act, thereby giving FERC jurisdiction over the siting construction operation of hydrogen, interstate hydrogen gas pipelines. Some in the midstream sector did not think that was a good idea. It's too early. We shouldn't take this precipitous step. The Section 401 language was really interesting because the way it was initially written, a lot of folks thought that it would have expanded reviews under Section 401, which some in the fossil fuel industry, of course, thought that's not the right way to go, that the law, in fact, only should look at discharges into waters of the United States rather than broader issues surrounding the activities that are supposed to be permitted. There was an attempt to clarify some of that language. Savings clauses were added in, but the folks folks at the end of the day felt like it just added more confusion. So interestingly enough, Senator Manchin did pull that entire section from his bill in an attempt to sort of mitigate, reduce the opposition. 
didn't really work at the end of the day. But the transmission piece really was interesting to me because after Senator Manchin introduced uh, the bill, again, a lot of folks were focused on 401 because they knew that was coming. Uh, there was a draft bill that was sort of circulating around. But the transmission piece, I just didn't hear a lot of opposition, didn't hear a lot of discussion about it. But within a couple of days, NARUC, which is the group of state regulators, PUCs and others, all 50 states came together under one umbrella, fired off a letter, said, no way are you guys doing this. You're not taking our authority away. And then a group of Republican state AGs, 18 of them, I believe, fired off a letter on the mansion bill as a whole, but really honed in on the transmission piece, particularly language dealing with how you allocate costs for transmission build out. They were very concerned the way the language was written. You're going to try to, I think in their words, sort of socialize costs across states. And there are these states that don't want to build out renewables or don't want transmission. Why should they? I think there are examples. Why should Louisiana pay for California's renewable aspirations and build out? And that was their position. And that really, I think, galvanized Republican opposition around that particular point, but also just the broader bill and really contributed to, I think, the fallout that resulted in the bill getting pulled. So when I think about it, you know, the thing I love about permitting discussions is it gets highly technical and in detail across like so many different sectors of the energy system. You can lose your orientation relatively quickly. But the way that I sort of interpreted the bill was it was an attempt to open the pathway to development for lots of kinds of energy resources in the United States. Right. I think it's pretty clear if you look at the things Senator Manchin has said over the last year and a half whether he was leading this like bipartisan group last year, he was always trying to figure out how do we turn the U.S. into a country that better supplies energy security for itself and, and increasingly around the world through LNG exports to Europe and, and other and other mechanisms? And how do we sort of not have the permitting system get in the way of energy transition to the extent that it may, right? And this bill particularly was focused on transmission, which is electricity transmission, really big power wires that can take renewable or any kind of power really from one region to another to provide system resilience, balancing, and making room for permitting hydrogen pipelines and other things that are all going to be heavily supported under both the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act and the Inflation Reduction Act. But to sort of make maximum use of those investments, you need to have the ability to move hydrogen around, or at least you want to create the space for companies to do it. There's also a lot of stuff, and it'd be great to have you help us understand, Mike, what's in there around interagency coordination for NEPA review and sort of the speeding of timelines for everything, right? We're on a path of energy transition between now and 2050, as an example. You can look at now half dozen modeling studies, which tell you you need to build a lot of stuff. And I think that one of the concerns that you see both in the industry as well as on the environmental side, is you're just not going to be able to build that stuff fast enough. So what's the attempted reforms in the mansion bill that would allow you to build a lot of stuff of, of any kind? So the section one of the mansion bill is getting exactly at, at what you're talking about and trying in terms of trying to enhance coordination, as I said. And that interagency review process and then try to impose deadlines under the NEPA process. Again, this was not an amendment to NEPA, but it basically said if pursuant to NEPA, you have to do what's called an environmental impact statement, looking at the consequences of a major federal action. So anytime you're issuing a permit that significantly affects the quality of the human environment, uh, you have to go through this NEPA process. And usually it results for significant projects in an environmental impact statement. And over the years, EIS reviews have gotten very complicated, burdensome, and have introduced significant delays into projects. I believe CEQ's best estimate is that in 2010 to 2017, in their review, uh, the mean for completing an EIS was 4.5 years. I believe the National Association of Environmental Practitioners said more like 4.9 years. And they also said in their report recently that with each passing year, EIS has taken an additional 40 years. So they're getting longer and not shorter. Um, now, sometimes you can get these done fairly quickly, but oftentimes you're dealing with three, four, five years for some projects. And then the problem after that is usually you end up in court over some mistake, some error of procedure, and that's not brought under NEPA, that's brought under the Administrative Procedure Act, a totally separate statute. But what Senator Manchin was trying to do is he looked to the model, interestingly enough, of President Trump, who in 2017 signed an executive order called the One Federal Decision Executive Order, which again was trying to get all these agencies around the table for one project 
come up with one single, as you said, environmental document, in this case, meaning an EIS. That was done principally because there was an understanding that Congress at the time was not going to step up and rewrite laws and change the permitting process. So the Trump administration had to use existing authorities and try to do it the best it could. One federal decision per that executive order, uh, the results of it were mixed at best. It took about 26 or 27 months really to implement it and get it through all the various agencies. And even then, it was highly imperfect, again, because it was only relying on existing authorities. I think the critique maybe of what Senator Manchin did in this respect is he took, in large measure, that executive order and effectively codified it. There were things that he changed in some respects, but not really importantly. But he tried to essentially take that structure, take that framework, and codify it. And I think folks said, well, wait a minute, you are Congress. You have the pen. You should be writing the laws. You should be changing these underlying statutes right into the process in an enduring way going forward to improve this process. And I think people looked at the way the one federal decision framework was written in the Mansion Bill and thought this actually could make things more difficult, more complicated rather than less. There was a two-year deadline imposed, but it did have exemptions. It uh, had language that said to the maximum extent practicable should you meet this two-year deadline. Having been in the executive branch, I know full well that when it comes to doing these reviews, officials are very leery of meeting these artificial deadlines because they know probably at the end of the process they're going to get sued. And that's, again, one of the problems is one of the contributing reasons why these reviews take so long. They become encyclopedic because everyone's afraid to stop, wrap up, and move on. So again, it was an admirable attempt, I think, by Senator Manchin to try to uh, improve that coordination process. And he looked to an existing framework, I think, politically. Partly, he thought, well, if I'm using what President Trump has used, maybe Republicans who have endorsed this approach, will come on board with it. But I think folks really started digging into it and asking a lot of hard questions. And uh, some found that language just came up too short. And particularly on the deadline side, I think for Republicans going forward, if there's going to be this type of framework, they want those deadlines to be binding. They want them to have teeth. So when the two-year deadline, for example, hits, you can move on. And that's that pins down. So we'll see. But generally speaking, it's kind of what he was after. And we will see more of this. This is not the end of this debate. Uh, trying to improve that interagency process is very important. So, Marcella, my perception is that a lot of climate hawks in the Congress were supportive of the Mansion bill and the side deal, right? And for not just for the politics of he voted for the IRA and we owe him one, but because building a lot of stuff is part of the energy transition. From your perspective- I wouldn't say a lot of climate hawks support. I think off the record, a lot of climate hawks admit we need permitting reform, but the politics were so, so toxic on this one that they were scared to come forward. I stand corrected. Let, <laughs> let's dig into that a little bit. So like- um, what do you think the dynamics are? Like when you look at that, when you look at that bill, you look at that set of proposals, what in there is important? What what are the big carrots for, for climate hawks and, and what makes it a challenging thing for them to vocally support? I think from my perspective, the biggest climate win in the mansion deal is the transmission part of it. So federalizing the permitting approval process for transmission lines is really critical because Mike got into this a bit, but like as it stands now, if you have a transmission line that goes across different states, you have to get approval from each state. And if you know, you're know you a state that's in the middle of the line, you're not on the receiving or delivering end of the energy, there's not really much in it for you. And we have this sort of provision and practice for natural gas and pipelines, where it's far easier to permit those kinds of projects. And I guess from my perspective, like the status quo is so favorable for fossil fuels that really, you know, if we just treated clean and renewable energy the same way that we treat pipelines and fossil fuel projects, we would be in a better place because there are all kinds of federal practices and provisions that make it easier to build fossil fuel infrastructure more quickly. And what I would love to see the climate movement recognize here is that it's no longer enough to really orient ourselves as a movement by what we are against, but rather we need to define ourselves by what kinds of projects we want to build and making sure that community input is a part of it, but not kind of the bottleneck of development. I think in too many instances, people and NIMBYs, you know, in some of these different communities will use the permitting process as a way 
to get their own needs met. And so it's kind of, you know, the laws like the Endangered Species Act, the Clean Water Act, then get exploited by this vocal minority who shows up to community board meetings that has, you know, an endless amount of funds to, to fund their legal strategy to shut down these projects. And the result is that, you know, the status quo continues where our economy is more reliant on fossil fuels. In Massachusetts, there was this kind of damning example in Martha's Vineyard with Cape Wind, where you actually, it was a a massive offshore wind farm proposal, and you actually had the Kennedys and the Koch brothers coming together to oppose this project. And I think that's just a really good example of what the challenges here are, where it's like you have liberals and Democrats who, in theory, support climate action. But when it actually comes down to like, well, do you are you okay with an industrial scale solar farm in your neighborhood? And it becomes much more complicated then. So this begs the question, though, is the set of reforms that we're talking about at the federal level even enough to approach those challenges? Right. Oftentimes it's local zoning provisions, not NEPA, that gets in the way of individual projects. So from your perspective, is there enough or when we think about future packages, does permitting reform need to go further or have a different character than what we've already talked about? I think that's a great point that you raise. And NEPA has kind of become like the boogeyman for all of the people who don't like our permitting processes. And we certainly need to reform NEPA, but I actually think it's wrong to point toward the federal permitting process as like the main culprit here. In so many instances, it's actually state and local regulations that make it really hard to move these projects forward. I was just talking with folks who, you know, are advocating for abolishing NEPA. And if you look at all of the projects that they cite as examples of why permitting takes way too long, actually a lot of them were stalled by state and local regulations. So I do think that it's much deeper than just federal permitting, which you know is why this problem is so complicated is because there's really a patchwork of different requirements and regulations for each project. And so I think addressing NEPA is one drop in the bucket of what's really needed here. And I would encourage people to kind of keep that big picture because it's easy to just like, you know, criticize NEPA all day long, but like would getting rid of NEPA help? I don't think that it would. Mike, do you have any thoughts on that front? I do. I, I think it is a great point to say that it's bigger, broader, deeper than just at the federal level where the problems lie. But I have seen plenty of projects over the last few years that have gotten bogged down at the federal level, have gone through court. I even seen I've worked on projects that have gone all the way to the Supreme Court. One, and at the end of the day, those projects still died. And again, it was a result of having to get multiple permits and authorizations pursuant to many different statutes, sometimes with conflicting requirements. At the end of the day, project developers are finding themselves in court in kind of this caucus process where over and over again, the court will say, agency X, Y, and Z, we're going to remand because we got this wrong. Agency X, Y, and Z, they come back, they fix it, they go back into court again, and then they nix them on something else. And really, I mean, certainly local zoning issues can be a problem. State regulations, frameworks can be a problem. But I think litigation problem is probably the biggest problem we face. And that could be federal, state, local. But if we don't address that in a serious way, I don't know how much progress we can really make. Because if you look at bring up the Mountain Valley pipeline, I mean, Mountain Valley's been in court, I think, for nearly five years, going back and forth with the Fourth Circuit on a number of different issues. And that really, to me, is the big problem. Certainly, everybody should have their day in court. You don't want to say to a landowner, you don't want to say to an environmental group, you can't sue. They have to sue. They should be able to sue. But for how long? So it's not really a question of litigation, I suppose. It's a question of excessive litigation is really the problem. And how much litigation do you really need to be driving these agencies to the point where they throw their hands up and say, there's no more that we can really do here. So that's what I see as something that also has to be addressed as part of the overall equation. And right now, that's not really on the table at the federal level. I think that's really tricky politically. I don't know if you're going to get many Democrats to sign up for that. But again, if we're not dealing with that over time, I don't know how much real progress you can make. It has to be part of the solution. Well, the reality is that litigation is one of the ways that the United States allows for citizen input in in decisions, 
right? So it can't just be taken away. That's often the path by which people get community input. Marcella, what do you think about the alternatives to this litigious pathway? Yeah, I think I would just add on what Mike was saying and to your question, Joseph, about is a federal permitting deal on energy enough? And I would just highlight like the permitting process is too long for energy projects, but it's also too long for affordable housing and mass transit. And so like there's all of these different sectors of the economy that are impacted by the federal permitting process. So if we do a federal bill that just tackles the energy sector, I definitely think there's much more to be done on some of these other areas, like affordable housing specifically. Oftentimes, environmental regulations or local zoning rules are exploited by people to stop the build out of these projects. And to Mike's point about the litigation timelines, I think the mansion deal limited the opportunity for folks to file legal complaints to 150 days. And from my perspective, and, you know, I disagree with some of my friends on the left here, like 150 days, it's not that long, but it is a a decent amount of time where like if a group that has resources and energy and is, you know, enthusiastic about killing a certain project, like that's more than enough time for them to get their ducks in the row and file complaints. And I think the reality is is that, you know, there's a multi-million dollar industry on the left of environmental legal groups that like have dozens of environmental lawyers on staff whose full-time job is to file lawsuits to stop these projects. So if it's a priority for them to get it in within the timeline, I think they'll do it. And, you know, what Mike was saying, it's just from my perspective, and I keep saying that because I don't speak for all of the left, I have a more nuanced view here, like it's pretty unreasonable to ask a project developer to invest millions of dollars, sometimes billions, into a project where for the indefinite future, they won't know if they'll get sued and have to shut down the project in a decade from now or a month from now. And so we need to make it less risky for project developers to be willing to invest the kind of money we need to make these projects viable. I will say the environmental justice groups feel differently, and that's because NEPA and the legal pathways provided by NEPA have been a really central part of the left's legal strategy to stop pipelines and other polluting projects that they don't want in certain communities. The problem is that now NEPA is being exploited by people who now don't want to build the green industry and clean energy economy. So I I want to move on from the mansion side deal, but I think it's important to spend a moment on the Mountain Valley pipeline. And the reason for that is when I look at this project from a global sense, I see a world that needs more natural gas because a bunch of natural gas was just yanked off the market by Russian aggression and Putin using energy as a weapon. It's a pipeline that would produce gas out of the Marcella Shale region, which from an emissions intensity standpoint is probably one of the best places in the U.S., if not the world, to produce gas for consumption. If we look at the role of gas in the U.S. over the next 10 years, we expect to see more exports going to Europe and other markets to provide energy security. And we expect to see continued consumption here in the U.S. while the IRA really takes effect and and renewables and other low-carbon technologies scale up. So why is one pipeline, which would bring to market some of the cleanest gas we have available, such a political linchpin? I mean, it it happens to be going through West Virginia, which, you know, West Virginia's senior senator has disproportionate political capital in this moment. And so I think he is trying to use that political capital to get what he wants to, to benefit his constituents in the way he sees it. So I think there's kind of that historical luck of the project. But I also, I would say, like, I personally am not in favor of the Mountain Valley pipeline, but I do think that the trade-offs here of like massively expanding the federal government's ability to approve transmission line projects in exchange for one natural gas pipeline seems pretty fine to me. I, I think, you know, there's a bunch of grassroots organizing against the pipeline. I'm concerned about the legal precedent that would be set from Congress intervening to approve this one specific project that seems potentially dangerous to me. But when the trade-off is this one project versus like allowing us to ramp up our transmission build out at the scale and speed needed, it's kind of an easy decision for me. Well, that's an interesting point about precedent in terms of Congress intervening. There, There is, in fact, precedent. The Trans-Alaska Pipeline, Congress did intervene after there was some litigation in the early 1970s to basically say, 
No more judicial review. That's enough. We're steaming this approved. The NEPA review is done. There's some TVA projects as well, I think, in the 70s, late 70s and 80s. So Congress has done this before. I tend to think I heartily support the Mountain Valley Pipeline, for sure, and getting it completed and operational. For the reasons you cited, Joseph, I think it's very important from an emissions perspective, an energy security perspective, especially everything going on in the world today. The world needs U.S. LNG exports and U.S. gas, and we need it here at home as well. I think, and I'm speculating here, Monsella can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that the opposition to this pipeline stems in good part from setting an example. If you can defeat this pipeline and other pipelines like it, then maybe you can dissuade project developers in the future from coming back and say, well, you know what, maybe building out fossil fuel infrastructure, in this case, a natural gas pipeline, maybe it, we shouldn't do it because we know the opposition is there. We know we're going to be tied up in court. So I think there is a strategic element here to try to get in the way of these projects. And Mountain Valley Pipeline is largely done. And I think it would be tragic to see billions of dollars wasted if we can't complete it. But I think that's what's going on here. I think there is opposition, of course, over the longer term to building out and trenching these fossil fuel assets from a climate perspective. I think certain folks don't want to see that. If you're building these out, they could be stranded assets over the years, number one. But then number two, you're building out fossil fuel infrastructure, then you're keeping fossil fuels viable for a longer period of time than maybe is warranted, as some may say. So that's where I think the opposition stems from. And I wonder, though, if you know, we're going to see pipelines like this in the future. I just think that even if it does get ultimately permitted, which is certainly possible, even if Congress doesn't intervene, it still has a ways to go. But I think there is going to be, I already know, in terms of talking to the industry, that folks are really second guessing whether they want to go through this process to build this type of pipeline. Shouldn't they just do expansions of existing pipelines? Is that a safer bet from a certainty standpoint, a financial standpoint? And maybe that's the case. We'll see. But um, that's that's where we are. And I also say I'm not a huge fan, though, even though I do support Congress intervening here and completing this project, that's not permitting reform. We shouldn't kid ourselves. Just saying one project is hereby deemed approved, notwithstanding other, any other provision of law, you're not reforming the process. You're just picking out one project and saying you're done. And in fact, it's interesting because there was some who said, some staffers and members, some Republican side, yes, we support getting MVP done, but I got some projects in my own state. I've got projects lined up at FERC that need certificates. And so why can't I put that into the mix? And so that was an interesting sort of back uh, room debate that was going on. And it never really came to the fore. But I wonder if Mountain Valley, if we see this coming up in other contexts and linked up, will that get in the way potentially of it getting done? We'll see. It's like permitting earmarks. That's right. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Can I just jump in there in response, Mike? I think one, Mike, you are correct. The strategy is to increase the social cost of doing these projects so much such that project developers take that into account when they're deciding if they want to do projects or not. But I also would say, you know, I'm sympathetic to and open to the argument, Joseph, that you laid out that potentially these kinds of pipelines that are moving natural gas might have on net climate benefits. And I'm not fully persuaded. I'm open to it. I'm going through my own political evolution here. So be patient with me. But I will say, like, I think a way to do this better from a permitting perspective is to encourage government entities to do more rigorous cost benefit analyses on these kinds of projects. Because if you can say, like, the cost benefit outcome of the Mountain Valley pipeline is such that like West Virginia will use less coal and pollute less communities because of this. And this pipeline will help Europe be less reliant on Russian oil and that kind of thing. Then I think you put the environmental movement in a tougher position of, you know, right now we they can say this is bad for the climate and folks like Mike can say this is, you know, maybe good for the climate and everyone's just kind of using their own data and facts. But if we have a real rigorous analysis that, you know, weighs the benefits over the costs where you can say, these are how many emissions of carbon will be averted if you build this or not. That's the kind of future I want to move toward with these kinds of discussions so that we can have a real debate based on the merits. Because I think there's a little too much rhetoric on the left for my taste, where it's just like pipelines are bad, all pipelines are harmful to the climate. And I just think it's a little more complicated than that. I think Marcella raises a great 
point and gets to a very important, highly technical issue. I don't want to get too weedy here, but there is an ongoing debate about whether in the NEPA process, agencies are required or should use the social, it's called the social cost of greenhouse gases. That is a way to think about what the, the costs are in terms of emitting one ton of carbon dioxide or other greenhouse gases into the atmosphere on things like agriculture and public health and other things. And that has been very controversial in terms of using it in the NEPA process, because some argue that NEPA was not intended to go through this rigorous cost benefit. It was simply to say, here are to the public the impacts from this project. Here are some of the alternatives that you could consider if you do it. And that really should be it. Really, NEPA over the years, and I think Marcelo, by the way, is right. I think there's an inordinate focus on NEPA. It's very important in terms of permitting process, but there are a lot of other issues we should be thinking about. Nonetheless, there has been litigation over this point about the social cost of greenhouse gases and using it, particularly for pipelines and this cost-benefit approach under NEPA. We'll see how this plays out legally, but I think there's an argument on the part of the pipeline sector in particular that the social cost of greenhouse gases, the way it is constructed, and when you implement it, that it disfavors and that's biased against in a cost-benefit perspective, actually building out gas pipelines. Again, that's a very technical debate, scientific debate that we don't really need to get into. Yeah. But I just wanted to raise that because it's really, really important going forward, because I do think from a political perspective, if we do get into the heart of NEPA, that Republicans are going to be arguing, take those sorts of things out of NEPA. Whereas I think, as Marcella indicated, we're going to be seeing from the other side saying, no, we need to keep that in. And then it's, if you agree, keep it in. It's a question of how do you do it. So very important issue. Yeah, I think actually because of the depth of that issue, we should reserve it for another conversation. Yes. But that's stuff that you know our program here at CSIS has thought about already. But it's months of work. I want to talk a little bit about the path forward. Here's my assessment, and I welcome correction or amendment from both of you. It does seem to me that permitting reform has an opportunity, that making the government less onerous is something that Republicans are still very on board with. Industry sees this as being very important. And it does seem to me that the a lot of leading voices on the left see the benefits of permitting reform in terms of achieving energy transition or a lot of the other things that Marcella talked about, the building of affordable housing or public transportation systems or whatever. But I'm interested in, in your thoughts, both of you, like, what do we actually think the path forward here could be? Are we going to have a conversation in, in the lame duck around permitting reform? Is this an element for, for after the midterms? There's a lot of agreement. And so... The way policy change happens in Washington is a lot of agreement sneaks up on you real fast. We have a debate around the margins and then something happens. So what are your thoughts? So I think, uh, as you indicated, Joseph, we're going to be dealing with this issue for a very long time. But we're going to be dealing with it in the very short term in two vehicles, I think. One is the National Defense Authorization Act, which over time has attracted uh, a lot of extraneous provisions, including controversial projects that were having trouble getting through the process. So there's a thought that maybe you could do permitting reform on that bill, or maybe you could strip permitting reform down to just the Mountain Valley Pipeline. I think that's going to be difficult to do. That process is closing up here very shortly. We'll have a debate probably right up the election. And I think there's a sense that policymakers want to get that wrapped up and done. Again, possible, but I think maybe more likely is the end of year battle over the budget. Right now, the government is operating under continuous or continuing resolution. So we have to get what's called an omnibus appropriations bill completed at the end of the year. And that process can be chaotic and with a lot of politics and policy and everything sort of thrown against the wall. A lot of unfinished business in the year that hadn't gotten done. But folks think, geez, that's a perfect place to put a big permitting reform bill. And I think that's maybe where we're going to be looking to see if we can get a vehicle to attach something. And again, what would that look like is the question. Mountain Valley Pipeline, I think, is still in play because just about every Republican supports it. Joe Manchin really supports it. And I think it's a question of Senator Schumer's commitment to Joe Manchin, the White House, as well as Speaker Pelosi. Are they willing to continue that commitment, even if we're sort of boiling this down to MVP? Well, they say we really got to get this done for Joe. He came through. He voted for the IRA. But again, the Republicans are going to say that's great, but we'd like to see some additional things attached too. And so that could mean anything from, as we noted earlier, fixing Section 1 of the 401 of the Clean Water Act, 
fixing the NEPA process, putting those hard deadlines on two years or one year, what have you, fixing the LNG export permitting process. I know there are some senators from the Gulf Coast who want to make those changes that they're talking about now. So this is going to be interesting to watch. I don't know if the system can bear by the end of the year a lot of these changes. I just think they're going to be too controversial. I think, as Marcella indicated, I think you're seeing progressives in the House who at the moment anyway are saying no to a permitting reform bill that would ultimately allow to build out a more fossil fuel infrastructure. My sense is, though, that Maybe if this doesn't happen by the end of the year, that could be a good thing. Because I think by next year, we're going to see a lot of pressure building up in the system where, again, you have the IRA and they've been passed 300 billion plus going into the system. Folks are saying, we got to build and we can't. And so I think the renewable developers and the fossil fuel developers are starting to talk to one another. What can we do together to go up to the Hill to get Democrats and Republicans to agree? And so a lot of folks are skeptical that in the 118th Congress, if Republicans control the House and or the Senate, nothing will get done. I'm a little bit more optimistic. I think on this issue, we actually could get some incremental reforms through the process. It's going to take a lot of hard work. Politics will be difficult, but that's kind of how I see it. And Marcella, do you see sort of a path forward for a big grand bargain? Or do you think the sort of chipping away on the margins is the path? I mean, I agree with Mike. It looks like the NDAA and the Omni are going to be the two options if Manchin's deal moves forward. I would say like a Manchin permitting deal versus a Kevin McCarthy permitting deal would probably be far friendlier to clean energy. So I think Republicans will have an appetite for this, not to be cynical about Democrats' electoral prospects in November, but I think we're at least looking at a Republican House. And I do, I mean, I'm old enough to remember when Republicans were in favor of cutting red tape. I was a little surprised how things played out with this permitting deal. So I would anticipate Republicans will go back to that. And if there's an opportunity to move the ball forward on streamlined permitting, that makes it easier to build transmission, to build offshore wind and solar farms um, and some of the other climate technologies that we need, like I certainly would hope so. And I, I also just wanted to add, like, I think what I've read in the research, like the way that clean energy as an industry is really booming means that if we streamline the permitting process in general, it will disproportionately benefit the climate and clean energy, especially with the IRA's investments. So I, I would be less nervous about a Republican deal than maybe others. I mean, I would say that I don't really see on the Republican side that they would be supporting permitting reforms that would be hostile to uh, clean energy. I think they're looking at it from sort of a fuel neutral perspective. I mean, if you are yeah. changing the NEPA process such that, you know, an EIS should only take one year and that's it and pens down, that I think Republicans would say that should apply to a solar array or an offshore wind farm as much as it should as a pipeline. So I think there could be some potential agreement there. Now, there could be things added into the House Republican approach, I would say, that maybe are not going to be politically palatable to the other side. I think that's all but guaranteed. But I think there can be some things in the middle that we could cut out that both sides could potentially agree on. Again, and I think this litigation piece maybe will have to be put off for another day, but certainly NEPA is going to be at the heart of any deal. I think ESA, the Endangered Species Act, particularly for renewables, your offshore wind, or even if you're a solar array. I mean, I think the the Ivanpah project in the Mojave Desert was a great example of a desert tortoise. It took many years. I don't even know if that's still in the process, but the renewable industry has to grapple with ESA and the implications of ESA and getting biological opinions out of agencies and these consultations that take years. And so we're going to have to dig into these statutes. And both sides, I think, are going to ultimately agree that you know we're going to have to tweak it. It's just a matter of how you do that. That's the real challenge. If it were to be a fuel neutral permitting deal, Mike, like you proposed, like if you have fuel neutral sweeping permitting reforms that make it just easier and faster to build anything, do you think on net clean will beat out fossil fuels? Yeah. I mean, if you look at the subsidies that were just passed as part of the IRA, I mean, I think that the investment community, when they're thinking about the next generation of technologies that they want to invest in, I mean, I think they're looking at, at clean energy for sure. Now, certainly it's the case, I think you're right, and I think this is what you're getting at, that if you cleaned up the permitting process, fixed the litigation problem, would that then give greater incentive 
to folks who are sitting on the sidelines saying, maybe we shouldn't invest in that gas pipeline, or maybe we shouldn't go invest in that LNG export facility. Would that mean that they might do it? I think it would. But I think from my perspective, I think from the Republican perspective, that's actually a great thing. Let's just build those things out. Let's build out gas pipelines. Let's get LNG exports to the world. And let's build clean energy at the same time. I think they view that as a win-win. I think Senator Manchin has been very clear that he thinks that's a win-win. And I think that's what he was trying to get at. He said it very explicitly in the bill that he's laid out. So that, to me, is is probably the way to go. Yeah, but you can see areas. I mean, so two areas where I think we're going to find challenges that aren't really about fuel source, but are about the form of reform. They're not really about fuel source, but they're about the kinds of reforms that people are willing to accept. We've talked a little bit in this conversation about electricity transmission, and the status quo is it's a lot harder to build an electricity transmission line between states than a natural gas pipeline. Makes a lot of sense to think about how a reform you would make. But that was one of the things that caused a lot of Republican consternation because of these federalism issues, right? It's not clear that a bunch of Republicans, even if they want to cut red tape, want to invest in the Secretary of Energy a bunch of power over state authority and and the use of eminent domain. And likewise, you could think about mining in the, in the mineral supply chain, which is subject to a lot of these same reviews. Uh, we're talking about, we have the IRA, which has enormous subsidies for developing a nearshore or onshore mineral supply chain. But there's going to be a real consternation, I think, primarily on the political left, but I would say locally amongst Republicans as well, about building out a lot of mining with a lot of new mines, and there are challenges with the ESA, with the Clean Water Act, et cetera. So one of the one of the areas I'm thinking about is how do we talk about permitting reform in a way that enough members of Congress are going to be, see it as a win? I think like on NEPA and other issues, these kind of become code words, but eventually you need a, enough Congress people saying, this seems like it's in the general interest and it's enough in my districts, states, or my personal political interest that I want to support it. So do you either of you have thoughts on what are the key things we should think about in, in terms of making permitting reform a win for enough Congress people? So Data for Progress has been doing these community workshops and focus groups across the country that focus on community benefit agreements, which basically community benefit agreements happen when, for instance, there's going to be like a new sports stadium built in a place and there's going to be hundreds of millions of dollars spent to try to build it. And as in exchange for community support for the project, the project developers will commit to spending X percentage of the project costs on a community project that community members agree on. And the idea is that you could do this for energy projects as well. So you could say to a community, like, we want to build this industrial scale solar farm. It might disrupt your view or community character is what some people say. But here's what we'll get in exchange for it. We'll start, we'll fund an apprenticeship program at your community college. We'll, you know, fund this infrastructure project or whatever it might be that a community needs. And we've been doing these focus groups across the country, specifically on direct air capture, given that BIF allocated $3.5 billion toward direct air capture hubs across the country. So we've been going into these communities and saying, well, if this is going to be built here, like, what do you need the project developers to commit to? in order for you to support it. And so I think that community benefit agreements offer a different kind of path forward and paradigm shift on some of these projects, because we really need to build a lot of stuff to decarbonize and community input is part of that. It shouldn't be, like I said before, the bottleneck on stopping the clean energy transition. But I think there's a way where you can get the communities on board if you commit to making certain investments in them. And I also wanted to say, Joseph, you mentioned this a second ago, but I think nationally, it's the folks on the left who are perhaps most loudly against permitting reform, as you call it. But at the local level, a lot of times it's rural Republican communities that don't want you know, whatever energy project to disrupt their way of life as they see it. And so I think it, it unfortunately, the opposition can be pretty bipartisan. So we're going to need a more powerful coalition that's in favor of building to come together. Yeah, that last point, Marcel, is a great one that I think people do forget. You get the landowner community in some of these rural areas that are Republicans and in many cases don't like 
particularly in some cases, gas pipelines going through their backyards or over their farms. Uh, but I think that also is going to apply to transmission. And that's why I think you see Republicans pushing back so hard on this eminent domain issue and taking state authority away or diminishing it significantly in this process. I think in terms of the win for members of Congress on both sides of the aisle, I mean, Democrats, I think, if I could speak for them, are looking at this issue through a principally a climate lens. I think they're seeing the IRA in the past. They want to get clean energy built, and then they want to get the electricity generated and transmitted to city centers where we need it. On the other side, Republicans, not surprisingly, are looking at it through kind of the energy security lens. They're thinking about the global security situation, and they think domestically natural gas prices are really high, oil prices, gasoline prices are high, consumers are getting really hurt here. And then a lot of Republicans who come from um, energy producing, fossil producing states, uh, they want a win be able to go back to the state and demonstrate the win that, yes, we can build this pipeline. Yes, we can build these LNG export facilities. And yes, the industries that support fossil infrastructure in my state are also going to benefit. And so it's becoming very, very clear that any deal on permitting reform is going to have to include something on transmission. They're going to have to fix that problem. And it's really interesting to talk to Republicans on the Hill. They're starting to get that. They're really starting to do their homework on transmission in a way that a lot of folks haven't over the years. And so that's going to be the centerpiece. And if you can reach a deal there, then as Marcel indicated, maybe you reach a deal on transmission to satisfy the Democrats. But then on the Republican side, I think there are going to be demands to get into some of these statutes. And some of those are deemed to be sacrosanct. I think in the environmental community, can't touch these, you know, and I think the question is, well, these some of these statutes have been on the books for five decades. It's time to update them for the 21st century economy. And so that's going to be the trade-off is making transmission viable within the other side of it, updating some of these statutes. And again, I think, I keep saying it, but this litigation piece is important. That to me are some of the elements of where we're going to get a deal here. Again, transmission, I think it's going to really be central to it. I agree with you, Mike. I think there's things like the Clean Air Act, the Clean Water Act, the Endangered Species Act, NEPA, that came to be at a time where the environmental situation in this country was very different. Like the Clean Air Act did a ton to clean up smog in places like LA, and the Clean Water Act has improved our water quality standards in really significant ways. And I think we should like look at those successes, you know, take them in stride, be grateful, but also update and adapt to the 21st century, to your point. And like some parts of those laws are now obsolete and we need to, you know, move forward into the clean energy future that we need. I would like to thank you both for what has been an informative and very interesting conversation. My frustration with permitting reform conversations is that there's very little give. And and oftentimes it's like things sort of reduced to like NEPA or this like broad concept of permitting reform that isn't actually what is getting in the way of building fossil infrastructure or clean energy infrastructure. So I think I've learned a lot from today. I thank you both. And Marcella, starting with you, if you have any final words, you're more than welcome to share them. Yeah, I guess I would just say like, I don't have, I don't feel like I have many allies on the left saying some of the things that I said on this podcast, but I think there are a ton of reasons for progressives to care about reforming and improving the permitting process. One is climate. If we don't rapidly speed up the scale at which we're building transmission in this country, the IRA's emissions impacts will be significantly diminished. The second is housing. We're in an affordable housing crisis in this country. If you care about helping to reduce homelessness, if you care about affordability of housing in your city, permitting reform should interest you. And lastly, as a progressive, I care a lot about making government work well. There's no shortage of transformative policy ideas on the left of ways for the government to, you know, expand state capacity from Childcare to climate to mass transit. Like, there's all of these visionary ideas that we have as progressives. But if we can't build the infrastructure to support the state capacity to get these things done, we aren't going to be able to meet our policy goals. And more importantly, we're not going to be able to persuade voters that the government as an entity is capable of delivering goods and services in an effective manner. And that, to me, is a really important thing. So that's why I'm committed to improving our permitting process. And it might make for some strange bedfellows, you know, me and some Republicans who support permitting reform. But if that's what needs to happen, then I think we need to, to look toward the future and change the environmental paradigm on this. 
Well, I've also really enjoyed this. It's been a great conversation. I think just in, in closing, I mean, it seems to me we need to get this process to a default of yes. I mean, the default for too long has been no. And uh, now, obviously, there are some projects that are better than others. And you want to be very careful about how you do this. We're not talking, by the way, about undermining or getting rid of the nation's best highest environmental standards in the world. And I think that's something that we should be absolutely proud of. I think what we're trying to do is bring greater certainty to the process. I think we're trying to get a measure of the bureaucracy and the red tape that we see out of the process. And then again, I think the success of litigation needs to come to an end. I mean, after all here, what are we trying to do? We're trying to build out new and improved modern infrastructure, whether you're talking on the fossil side, the renewable side, and it's going to be cleaner, it's going to be better. So let's build it out. And again, we lead the world in doing it. We lead the world in reducing emissions. Again, we have the highest environmental standards and we can prove it. So let's develop a system that keeps those standards in place, but gives project developers that certainty that when they go through the process, if they do all the right things, that it's not going to really take that long. And yes, you may have to fight in court because people deserve to have their day in court, but it's not going to be endless. And at the end of the day, you have some sense that maybe... <laughs> or it's highly likely that you could get your project built. And I think that's really what we need to focus on. Again, let's get this system to a yes rather than where it is right now, which is a no. Well, thank you very much. This has been a great conversation and we look forward to seeing you both in the future. Thanks to Marcella, Mike, and Joseph for helping us understand how permitting reform fits into the broader U.S. climate and energy agenda. You can find more episodes of Energy 360 wherever you listen to podcasts and at CSIS.org. As always, for updates, follow us on Twitter at CSIS Energy, and thanks for listening.